0: All right, Exodus chapter 12 is where we pick back up this evening. Last time when we were together, we went down as far as verse 28 together in Exodus chapter 12. And we've been looking here in Exodus chapter 12 at basically the institution... Uh, of the Passover that God gave uh, to Israel, to the Jewish people. Remember, in direct conjunction with the fact that God is about to deliver them at this point out of Egypt, where they've been in bondage and under servitude and rigorous slavery under the uh, sort of dictatorship of Pharaoh for some 400 plus years. And these numerous uh, plagues have been coming to pass against Pharaoh because of his resistance to let God's people go and work worship him uh, as he has been asking and requesting through Moses and Aaron. And now this 10th plague, which we know is the plague of the firstborn, the severest of all the plagues, is about to come to pass uh, on this very night against uh, the Egyptians. And in conjunction with that, God has told his people uh, in order to avert the judgment of god really in the severity of the loss of life that what they were to do remember was to take a lamb god told them without blemish of the first year they were to keep it from the 14th day uh, basically or until the 14th day so about four days from the 10th to the 14th day in their house and then on the 14th day remember they were to then sacrifice or put to death that lamb it was a substitutionary sacrifice and they were to apply the the blood on the doorposts and the lintels of their home. And God told them, Look, wherever I see the blood, I will pass over that household. Uh, and in a sense, God was already establishing this beautiful picture, this typology of the redemption. The forgiveness of sins and how the the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God, would pass over you and I through the shed blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins upon the cross. But there was this very specific requirement that God gave to them that wherever he saw the blood... The angel of death that would go through and bring about this judgment upon the people of Egypt that it would pass over those households. So uh, God gave these various instructions connected with the Passover celebration which would be a perpetual ordinance that Israel would celebrate throughout their generations on this eve that he was about to bring about the plague of the firstborn. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 28 tells us, in sort of a summarization of where we left off, then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So the Israelites comply with what God requested. Uh, They take the lamb, they make the preparations. Remember, there were other things we saw connected to that. You can go back and review those things if you weren't with us from chapter 12. But primarily, this important essential that the lamb would be sacrificed, the blood would be applied to the doorposts and the lentils of their home so that the uh, angel of death, when it came, would pass over their house and the judgment of God would not fall upon their lives and they would be spared God's judgment for one reason and one reason alone, because of the innocent sacrifice and the substitutionary blood ...of a lamb, in a sense, that died in a substitutionary way on their behalf. And when God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over, it wasn't based on their performance. It wasn't honestly, please understand, that they in and of themselves were any more righteous than the Egyptians. Because though the Jews were God's chosen people, they, just like you and I, they were sinners... They failed. They did things wrong. They made mistakes. Even as the Bible says, we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. There's no difference between any one of us. The only distinct difference that spared them from the judgment of God was if they believed the word of God and they took personal application of it to their lives. And they made sure that they put themselves by belief and by obedient behavior under the shed blood of that lamb, uh, that they were spared the judgment of God. In the same way with you and I, it's not based upon our performance, our good works, whether we've had a good week or a bad week, whether we've you know, outweighed our goods and bads. It is nothing other than the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who the Bible tells in the New Testament is our Passover, Jesus himself. That Lamb of God who John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the only reason any of us are spared from God's judgment or can be spared from God's judgment is if our faith is in the finished work of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us in a substitutionary way. And we, in a sense, put our lives under that covering. By our belief in the sacrificial death of Christ and the substitutionary work that His shed blood provides for atonement for our sins. So the Israelites comply, they go through this, and now chapter 29 tells us And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord, notice, struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, so exactly as God predicted exactly as God warned. God warned that this judgment was coming, but they ignored the fact that God's judgment would come even as to this day. The word of God is very clear that Jesus Christ is about to come a second time. The Bible is very clear there's a time of tribulation and judgment coming upon this world for those who reject Jesus Christ. And whether people heed that warning or not, Whether people choose to submit to that warning and respond to what the Word of God says is the right thing to do, to be ready for that, uh, does not affect the fact that it will come to pass. It's going to come to pass. And the one difference is this. Here, in this situation, God actually told them, look, this is the day, and he made it completely evident and clear, look, this is the day, and when it's going to happen, and they could have been completely ready. The Bible tells us now no man knows the day or the hour, uh, which means it's all the more imminent that we must be ready, and it's not something that we should forestall and put off because no man knows the day or the hour, A, when the Lord's going to return, or B, when we could breathe our last breath – and be standing before the Lord. And at that point, our eternal judgment, in a sense, is sealed. You know, And here, it came to pass, it tells us, the judgment of God fell as God said it would. The Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn notice of Pharaoh. That is the palace, the most powerful, wealthy man in the Egyptian empire. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dudgeon and all the firstborn of the livestock? So Pharaoh rose in the night; he and his servants and all the Egyptians. And notice, there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. So you can imagine the, the you know the severity of this, the gravity of this fact, of all of this death taking place. The incredible trauma uh, of this whole situation as everyone is grieving and mourning as God's word has now come to pass in their lives. And more than that, take notice that no one was able to escape this. It tells us that whether it was the firstborn in Pharaoh's palace, his own child, or whether it was one of the captives who were down in the dungeon, it didn't matter how rich or poor you were. It didn't matter, you know, how influential and powerful you were, or whether you were somebody who was sitting down in a dungeon that was shackled. Notice there was level ground when it came to what took to pass, to, came, to what came to pass with God's word, and so important because. You know, there's a very deceptive thing that exists unfortunately among humanity where people think, well, you know, if you're this class you get special privilege, but if you're this class you don't or vice versa. And God shows no partiality. The word of God's very clear with that. It doesn't matter what your race is, it doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is, it doesn't matter whether you're young, old, rich, poor. None of those things matter. God is a God of equality. And he's a God that shows no favoritism, and he can't be bribed, and he can't be paid off somehow. And notice when the judgment of God came to pass, all of Pharaoh's power, all of his money, everything he possessed, it could do nothing for him in that hour. Absolutely nothing, because it says that it was a universal judgment whether one was born in the palace of Pharaoh who sat on the throne or whether someone was in the place of the dungeon. There's a great outcry, not one house where there was not one dead of the firstborn. And verse 31 says, Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night. So again, you can imagine the, the shrieks and the shrills, You know, parents grieving over their children. I mean, this must have been a very traumatic thing. And now at this point, notice Pharaoh is compelled. You know, no longer is he, he's finally come to his breaking point. He says, rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said, and take also your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And interesting, he says, and by the way, bless me also. <laughs> Isn't it interesting how people can be so obstinate, so stubborn, so rebellious and hard-hearted towards God, but they're more than glad to say, "But God, could you still, could you, could you throw me a blessing while you're at it?" Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's just really shocking how, you know, humanity works and, you know, where we can be at in our hearts and minds. You know, we can, how people, you know, you meet these people, I interact with these people all the time. They want nothing to do with God unless they need a little blessing. You know, they want God to kind of be a little genie in a bottle for them. You know, I, I want you to just stay in your bottle, stay out of my life. You know, I don't want you to rule over my life or anything. But once in a while, I may need to rub the bottle, and you know, could you could you throw me a blessing once in a while, God? Or that you know, would you hey would you play pray for me? I yeah I made a mess of my life, and I did this wrong, and I did that wrong, and I did this contrary to God's word, and this contrary to God's will. Uh, but could you play God bless? Could you pray God will bless me? And 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 here's Pharaoh here. What level of sincerity he has? I'm fairly certain to say that he's still a very insincere man. that that this has no integrity behind it, because as soon as they leave, what do we know, for those of us who know the story of Watch Ten Commandments, what happens shortly afterwards? He changes his mind right away, and he goes chasing down, barking at the heels of the children of Israel, trying to take them and punish them or bring them back under his slavery and servitude. So I don't think there's any sincerity in this. Uh, Again, you still have this very hard heart, but he's now compelled, because the circumstances... And the trial on his life has become severe. And like many people, you know, the when the heat and intensity comes, he just says, whatever, just just go, take what and he just compels them now to leave. And in a sense, I, I love the picture as well because what it shows you is how ultimately man does not get the final say. Again, here's Pharaoh, I'm not letting them go, I'm not letting them go. Nobody's gonna tell me, you know, nobody tells Pharaoh what to do. You know, Pharaoh ultimately has final authority over and there's this very powerful man and everyone bows down at him. But ultimately, what happens? Ultimately, God turns up the pressure enough in his life where he completely cooperates with the will of God, uh, and ultimately God can break him, and ultimately, God forces him, though as you know powerful and authoritarian and rebellious as he was, God still uses his life to come into cooperation with the ultimate will of God, because now He just tells the Israelites, "Look, go." And take everything with you uh, and go and do what God has asked you to do. Go serve the Lord as you have said. And he's now in cooperation and he's supporting and assisting the work of God and the will of God in the lives of the children of Israel. Verse 33, notice God's hand still at work through the pagan people and the Egyptians. Notice they also urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste for they said we shall In other words, again, you can picture the Egyptians experiencing a a, a dead child in every home. All of a sudden, they're very compelled now. They're thinking, how much worse could this possibly get? Just get out of here. Whatever you have to do, they're now urging and pushing the Israelites out of their territory as well. So the people, says, verse 34, took their dough before it was leavened. That is, before they had a chance to to bake it, the idea is. Just took their prepared dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. And they had asked from the Egyptians articles, notice, of silver, articles of gold, and articles of clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now, we've talked about this before in some of our prior verses. Basically, what you have here is a fulfillment of a prophecy from Genesis chapter 15. When God spoke there that the people of Israel, when they became a nation, would be in a foreign land for some 400 years... And that when they went out, God said they would go out with great possessions. Now, for 400 years, it certainly didn't look like that was going to happen. One, it didn't look like they were ever going to leave because they were in incredible painful bondage and they were being tormented and mistreated and abused and taken advantage of. And then secondarily, it certainly didn't look like they were going to go out with great possessions because everything had been stripped from them and taken from them. So. The two things that God said hundreds of years prior to Abraham, uh, really, circumstantially, it all looked like it was never going to come to pass. In fact, it was almost contradicting, it seemed, what they were experiencing circumstantially for a long period of time, what God's promise actually was to them. But ultimately, God fulfills both of the things. Ultimately, we see here God is now delivering them out, as he said he would. And ultimately, they are going out, we read here, with great possessions as a result of what takes place. God tells them, we saw in prior verses, to actually ask of the Egyptians articles of silver, gold, clothing. And God put a favor into the hearts of the Egyptians to actually want to be benevolent and generous and to do these things and share their goods, their gold, silver, and clothing, all things of wealth that were important with these Jewish people who were nothing other than their slaves for hundreds and hundreds of years and again we we pointed out before how in one sense there's a part of this that is just God's you know divine compensation because really all they're doing is collecting back pay for hundreds of years where they served and served and the bible says in fact Jesus himself says the laborer is worthy of his wages The book of Proverbs in many places make it very clear that when someone works, they are worthy of adequate, proper compensation. It's a standard of the Lord. And no matter what kind of work a person does, that they should be adequately compensated. And the children of Israel have worked as slaves, hard rigor and labor, and they've never been adequately paid. They've just been abused and taken advantage of under the dictatorship of Pharaoh. So God says, look, no worries. Have you been abused, taken advantage of? I'll get you back pay on the way out. You know, and sometimes there's a part of that that's encouraging because people can try and rip you off. They can try and take advantage of you. At the end of the day, the Lord's going to take care of you. At the end of the day, the Lord is going to make sure that you're adequately compensated, that you're paid back, that you're, in a sense, you know, taken care of for whatever it is that rightly and justly belongs to you. And again, w- whether that's monetary compensation or whether that's maybe just praise and somebody actually saying thanks to you or appreciating something, uh, the Lord is always gracious to make sure that he takes care of his own, and here... God puts a favor in their hearts and it's really a supernatural thing because given all these plagues that were coming upon the Egyptians that we've studied recently, remember? It is the last thing in the world for us to try and fathom in our minds that the Egyptian people would want to be nice to the Jewish people. I mean, it was the Jewish people and their God that they worshipped that was, in a sense, the direct uh, correlation to all of these plagues that were coming upon their lives, making their lives miserable. And God says, "Well, go ask them if they'll give you some gold, silver, and clothes. Hey, you know, when we leave, we can use a little for travel expenses, and you know, we, you know, we, we don't really have much. To, we're empty-handed, and 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 don't worry, I'll put a favor in their hearts, and they'll say yes to you. And exactly what God said would happen, we read here is exactly what is happening. They're going out with great possessions, and again, the reason, verse 36, because the Lord had given the people favor." in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested listen god's the same yesterday today and forever and if god wants to today he can put favor in the heart of someone even if they're an egyptian even if they're not a christian they don't know the lord you know god can move in the heart of someone and put favor into their hearts to do something that would be necessary to help you to answer a request that you're making maybe it's an employer maybe it's listen the same thing can come to pass god can put favor in the heart of someone so that they grant you what you request of them or they for some reason are benevolent to you or kind to you or they or they do something you're asking of them maybe there's something that's you know a pressing need listen We see in the Bible many examples of this with Cyrus, again, a pagan king. And God stirs the heart of Cyrus, a pagan king we read of, you know, in books of Ezra and Nehemiah and so forth and those accounts. And he stirs the heart of Cyrus to issue a decree to tell the children of Israel to go back and to build their temple in Jerusalem. And on top of that, he says, look, not only go back, God's actually told me to finance the project for you. So I don't even know you're God, but I'm but but I'm going to pay for your whole project. And then he issues a decree among his people, and he says, look, whoever's not going, if you're not going to go and help, then you should send money for the people who are going to go do it. And again, it says very clearly, God stirs his heart. And what a wonderful thing that God can stir the hearts of people. God can put favor in someone's heart in a way that it creates a, a necessary need in your life as well. And and what a beautiful thing to see how God can do that. And here they go out now With gold and silver and clothing articles, they're adequately supplied for this journey as they depart now on the exodus from Egypt. Verse 37, and then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses, a very well-known Egyptian area. To Sukkoth, now that's not the Sukkoth that we read in the New Testament and know of as an area, uh, we see it in the Old Testament as well, I guess, uh, of the area of of Canaan or Israel. That's just a reference to a territory in the Egyptian uh, geographic area called Sukkoth as well. And of course that term ultimately becomes the term for booths, we know that as well. But journeying from Ramses to Sukkoth, and now the Bible tells us there were about Notice, 600,000 men on foot, and then the Holy Spirit inserts besides children. So this gives us kind of a picture, a mental understanding of how many people were leaving and departing from from Egypt during the Exodus as God delivered them from Egypt. It says that there were 600,000 men on foot besides, that is, not counting the children. Now... Uh, let's just say you factor in 600,000 men, you throw a wife into that with every man, and then you add in even one child or two children, it is fairly conservative and fair to estimate to say that you probably have a population of somewhere around two to two and a half million people that are departing at this time and transitioning out and being delivered, and and in a sense that God is going to shepherd and take care of throughout their journey through the wilderness. And on top of that, and Moses is going to have to oversee. You can tell why Moses got a little stressed once in a while. (laughs) Two and a half million people. I mean, people, oh, I wish I had a larger congregation. I I don't know. I want two and a half million people to have to take care of. And then no wonder you read once in a while that, you know, they would start to grumble and complain. That's a lot of complaining. And you see how Moses probably got a little stressed out once in a while. So this is a large group of people, but it makes it all the more fascinating. And I, I I leave that thought with you now as we move forward in the things we'll study ahead and the wilderness wanderings and so forth. To keep in mind when it says that God sustained them, that God fed them, that God made sure that their clothing and nothing ever wore out. And and what would it require? You know, some people who are, uh, you know, like military logistics people and so forth have done studies and tried to calculate. How much food would it require just per day to keep two and a half million people fed? How many gallons of water? I think one uh, uh, statistic one day before there was something like certain you know millions of gallons of water per day just just to sustain them in the wilderness. And God sustained them. God sustained them. He took care of them. Now I think if God can do that, I think God can sustain you and I. I think in our wilderness journey, whatever it is, I think God can find a way to sustain us. Again, we'll see God brings water from rocks and he, you know, causes manna to fall from heaven and, you know, meat to come by the, you know, the flocks of quail and so forth to bring in. And we'll see the many different ways that God sustained us. But this was quite a large, large group of people, a massive congregation moving out at this time. Verse 38 says that there was also a mixed multitude that went with them also, and flocks and herds and a great deal of livestock. Now, we'll talk more about that term there. I have it circled in verse 38, the mixed multitude. What that indicates is no doubt not only were there just Jews who went out in this exodus, people who believed in Jehovah God, but there were potentially Maybe some Egyptians who chose to believe in Jehovah God that went with them or potentially maybe a greater inference there to a description of maybe Jews who intermarried with Egyptians as they were there for 400 years. So in a sense, you may have had you know one spouse that was Jewish and one spouse that was uh, Egyptian. But th- the mixed multitude, remember, we'll see as we go through our study together, these always end up being the troublemakers. The mixed multitude were those who they dwell among the people of God, but they really didn't have a genuine relationship with God. And as a result of that, it was always the mixed multitude who were the ones who were starting the complaints, who were in a sense creating strife, and they were the troublemakers. And many a times we'll see reference to it was those who were from the mixed multitude that ended up being the troublemakers and the problem starters among the people of God And the congregation of Israel. And you know, to this day, still, unfortunately, uh, you know, even as Jesus talked about when the seed is sown, that, you know, there there would be wheat and tares that would grow up together. Uh, Even today, in congregations and in churches, there are always those who are the mixed multitude among the genuine church and people of God as believers come together. And those who, again, they congregate with the people of God, they want to hang out with the people of God and dwell with the people of God, but they don't genuinely have a relationship with the Lord. They don't have a heart that's submitted and surrendered to the things of the Holy Spirit. So, because of that, many times they have all the more of a carnal uh, nature that tends to then affect and many times pollute and contaminate what God's doing among the body of believers in the genuine congregation. And many times, you know, these can become trouble starters as they try and introduce and mix into the the family of God and the loving atmosphere that's supposed to be there, things that just don't belong and attitudes and behaviors that cause problematic situations. So we'll, we'll see, the Bible tells us in advance, that there was a mixed multitude that went up with them also, it says. And they baked unleavened cakes, verse 39, of the dough, which they brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait. The idea is it was a quick Exodus, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. But again, even though they didn't have time to prepare for themselves, God still made sure they were provided for. And I find great encouragement in that because I think we should be good stewards. I think we should have foresight. I think it's wise to plan ahead. I think it's good to manage our money intelligently, but you know sometimes we get thrust into something and we didn't have the opportunity to prepare in advance, and then we're forced into something or thrust into something. Uh, But even though they were quickly pushed into a situation and they didn't have time, it says, to prepare provisions for themselves, they didn't lack provision because God provided for them. Uh, Their God Jehovah Jireh made sure they had what they needed, no matter where they were in the midst of a middle of a desert or a wilderness. Verse 40, now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years, and it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord, that's an interesting title, because they were nothing but a group of slaves at this point. Uh, They knew nothing of weapons and warfare, and we'll talk more about that in a few minutes, but the Bible calls them the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn remembrance or observance, excuse me, to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, remember that was the covenant sign that God gave to Abraham to indicate that they had belief in Jehovah God and in his word to them. This was an outward sign of the inward condition of belief and dedication and commitment to God, the cutting away of the flesh. And this was something special God gave to the children of Israel as a covenant between himself and them regarding their belief in him. He says, so when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. The idea is once a genuine commitment has been made to God. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat of it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house. Notice, nor shall you break one of its bones. Again, take note of that. This was the Passover And we're told here that the Holy Spirit gives this instruction that they were not to break one of the bones of the animal that they partook of when they partook of the lamb in Passover. Now, flash forward to John chapter 19 as well as the prophecies that we find in Psalms where it tells us regarding Jesus that not one of his bones would be broken. So again, the Holy Spirit here picturing, foreshadowing something when you read John chapter 19 you see that when Jesus was on the cross and they wanted to expedite the death process, remember it was Jesus and a criminal on each side, the, the edict was given, go and break their legs. And the idea is they wanted to hasten the death process because typically crucifixion lasted a long time. I think the longest record I read one time before was a crucifixion you know, victim lasting something like, like 13 days. Uh, So it was a long, excruciating, painful process when you died. But one of the ways they could hasten the death process if they wanted to do that was they would break the legs of the victim, they would go up with a large mallet or like a sledgehammer, and they would whack the large femur bone. Uh, And when they broke the legs of the victims, their body would then slunch down further, which would cause the asphyxiation process to be expedited and they would basically asphyxiate and die sooner. And that was typically the way they would die because when their legs were, were not broken, it was excruciatingly painful, but they would push up on the nail that they were pierced through with down below and they would push up to be able to expand, again, the lungs and the diaphragm area to be able to exhale the carbon dioxide out of their system. So you could breathe in, but when your body weight is slunched down, It's very difficult to exhale carbon dioxide. So basically uh, what people would die from if they weren't, again, plucked to death by vultures and other animals, not to mention the bleeding and the other things that they had experienced in the trauma of a crucifixion process is basically in the same way that you you refer to someone maybe – we talk about get the bends when they go down underwater and they get carbon dioxide buildup in their body because they don't release the CO2 – out of their system, and it causes asphyxiation. That's what would happen ultimately, typically, to a crucified victim. So they would break the legs. Now remember, when they went to break the legs of Jesus and the other two criminals that were being crucified with him, it tells us that they found Jesus already dead. Why? Because when Jesus was finished his process, he gave up the ghost and departed from his body willingly because he chose the hour of his death. And they were surprised when they found that Jesus himself didn't need to have his legs broken, so they didn't break his legs. Remember, they pierced his side because the Bible also prophesied that that would happen, but they didn't break Jesus's legs, even though they were given the edict to because they realized they didn't need to, he had already passed. And again, here we find this inference, you shall not break one of the bones of the Passover lamb. And again, this was all prophetic to what we see unfolding as pictures and types of the Lord Jesus Christ as his legs weren't broken nor a bone as well. All the congregation verse 47 says of Israel shall keep the celebration of Passover. And when a stranger deals with you and wants to keep the Passover of the Lord. Or excuse me to the Lord. Let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land for no uh, uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native-born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. Now, one thing to take note of before we move into chapter 13— Take observance there, verse 43, roughly down to about verse 49. We have God giving this instruction, basically we could probably better say a prohibition, that those, it says, notice, who were foreigners, hired servants, sojourners, those who were not directly connected to the congregation of God's people, who it says had not yet been circumcised, that they were prohibited to partake of the Passover celebration in its meaning and the spiritual, you know, uh, meaning that it was to have behind it. Because there was not a full understanding in their hearts and the proper appreciation for what it represented between God and his people. You take notice in verse 48, it says they were keeping the Passover to the Lord. Keeping the Passover to the Lord. So God said, look, if they're not circumcised, and again, (laughs) if... If you were going to get circumcised, trust me, you were a believer, okay? Let's just put it very simply like that. If you if you were a foreigner and you wanted to demonstrate that you truly had a commitment and you wanted to make a commitment to Jehovah God, uh, if you were willing to get circumcised as a male at that point in your life, if you weren't raised in a Jewish home, that was a pretty clear evidence, okay, this guy's committed, you know, because he's willing to make a sacrifice. He's willing to demonstrate, hey, I'm in and I'm all in. And God said once they've made that commitment... It doesn't matter if they were born in a Jewish family or if they're a foreigner. What matters is that they have true faith and belief in their heart in the one true God. Is there a relationship with God? And and then the Passover celebration means something to them in a personal way, and they could then partake of it. But God said, if that has not happened, you should prohibit them from celebrating it. Because in a sense, it had no meaning to them when it was supposed to be a very meaningful thing in their hearts. And it was really just sort of mocking and disgracing what it represented to those who were true followers of the Lord. Now, I find this very interesting because, remember, Jesus himself takes the Passover celebration in the New Testament. And in a sense, he brings it into its greater fulfillment for you and I as Christians, as the church, the body of Christ, by instituting the Lord's Supper. And I find it very interesting when you study 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there seems to be a very uh, was it, repetitive exhortation and warning that we are not to partake of the Lord's Supper communion, the Bible says, in an unworthy manner. You know, It is my personal conviction. I won't be dogmatic about it. You're free to believe what you want to believe. But as I look at communion, in a sense, as the fulfillment or the New Testament celebration of Passover and what it meant to Israel in the Old Testament, I do believe that God puts forth a warning and a prohibition that if somebody's not a genuine born-again believer and follower in Jesus Christ, that it would be better for them to refrain from partaking of the elements of communion rather than doing it in an unworthy manner where it really means nothing to them. Because it's something that's intended to be very personal and celebrated between a person and their Lord. That that, that bread, we're saying, hey, I believe in the broken body of Jesus Christ for me. I believe in an intimate, personal way that he was broken for me and that his blood was shed for me. And to do that in just sort of a trivial, casual way, in just a liturgical observance, when you truly don't believe in Jesus, it means nothing to you in a sense it's almost sort of an affront to the lord it's almost sort of a mockery of what jesus christ has done for us that's supposed to have tremendous meaning to us that's why when you know many times when i you know lead a communion service i like to insert in there a gracious you know, prohibition. Look, if you're here and you're not truly a follower in Jesus Christ, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're worshiping together with us. Uh, but let me encourage you what the Word of God says that you consider. Look, sing with us. Praise the Lord. If you're not ready to make a commitment to Jesus Christ, you might want to consider refraining from partaking of the elements of communion if you're not ready to make that commitment yet. And the other option is to make the commitment. And then partake. But I truly believe as Passover was something for those who are genuine followers and believers in Jehovah God, I believe that communion is something for the church. It's for God's children. It's for Christians. It's something meaningful. In the same way it would be senseless and meaningful for someone to be baptized if they're truly not born again. All they did was just get wet. It it means nothing between them and the Lord if they're truly not born again. Uh, And I think that's why 1 Corinthians states some of the things in chapter 11 there that it does, uh, because to me, I think it's in direct connection to what we see here, God instituted Passover for the children of Israel. Well, chapter 13 continues on telling us, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, consecrate, or the idea is, separate or dedicate set apart this is the idea here set apart or consecrate God says to me as belonging to me all the firstborn whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel both man and beast God declares it is mine now this makes complete sense God spared all the firstborn as a result of not bringing his judgment upon them so God says look since I spared all of their lives, all of the firstborn, God says, I'm going to choose that they all belong to me, and therefore they are sure to be set apart to me, consecrate them to me. God says, I, I, they are mine. I want ownership of them, and they had a special place of priority to the Lord. And again, we begin to see this idea as we work through the Old Testament as well of, of God eventually saying that He wanted the first fruits, and the idea of this, the firstborn and giving to God of the first fruits, is basically just a way of acknowledging. That God is the author of life. That God is the one who gives uh, life and blessing and fertility and all these things. And verse 3 says, And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by the strength of the hand of the Lord, he brought you out of this place and no leavened bread shall be, and I love the way that says that Moses says, "Remember your deliverance, He says, and it was by the strength of the hand of the Lord that brought you out of this place. And, you know, as we think of our own deliverance, our own salvation, the things that we were in slavery to, our sins, our habits, our old life that was pictured by our life back in the world in Egypt, i don't know about you, but I would be the first to admit very clearly in my life that I remember, it was not by my own strength and my own self-resolve that I brought myself out of, you know, the the bondage of what I used to be in. It was strictly by the strength of the hand of the Lord, his strong hand that stepped in and grabbed hold of my life right where I was at. And it was by his strong hand that I was delivered out. And I think we need to remember that. We didn't deliver ourselves. You know, the things that you've been delivered from since you came to Jesus Christ – I don't mean to burst your bubble, but it wasn't your self-resolve. It wasn't your great determination or your discipline or your dedication. It was the divine, miraculous power of the strength of the hand of the Lord that, like Saul of Tarsus, broke into your life and grabbed you by the grace of God and yanked you out and turned you around and gave you the new, wonderful life in Christ that you have. So Moses says, remember. Remember this deliverance that by the strength of the hand of the Lord... You were brought out, and on this day you are going out in the month of Abib, which ultimately will be uh, described as well as the month of Nisan, according to the Jewish calendar. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hivites and Amorites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month, so it was to be celebrated annually, Passover, On this day and month, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord, and unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. So, as we talked about in prior sections of Scripture recently, Passover was to be celebrated, and then right on the heels of Passover was this week-long feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, where they were to celebrate for a week long afterwards. And we talked about the idea of the you know, leaven being a type of sin and so forth. But God here reminding them of the instruction that when they celebrate this every year on that month, he's very clear that they are to refrain from any leaven. Notice, there was to be no leaven seen among them or seen in all their quarters, they were to eradicate anything that would be leaven from their homes. And you know, sometimes I think that there's a need for that in our lives. And as we need to go through, and you know, whether it's personally in our hearts, sometimes we gotta go through and do a little house cleaning. And I find, you know, in in our lives on occasions, sometimes you step back and you realize, man, we've been getting a little lax or you know, sloppy here in regards to our disciplines about this or that or some habits or morality in certain areas, and and, and, you know, you almost kind of got to go through as as they did once a year. They went through and they literally cleared their house of everything that was leavened. And, you know, sometimes I don't think that's a bad thing to do to kind of say, hey, look, we need to clear some things out that we've allowed to get back into our house that just aren't good, that maybe aren't pleasing to the Lord. And they did that annually as they celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In verse 8, you shall notice, God says, tell your son in that day when you're celebrating it, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. And you shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. So notice... Again, in connection to this celebration, God says that they were instructed and required to convey this spiritual truth to the next generation, to their own children. God says, verse 8, you shall tell your son, saying this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up. From Egypt. so God says, "Look, I want you to convey these truths. I want you to convey the story of your redemption. I want you to talk about my deliverance and talk about what I have done for you with your children to share it with them. You know, and as parents, that is our responsibility. We are supposed to, not if it's convenient, not if it's well received, not if it's easy. We are supposed to, by God's design, Tell our children what the Lord has done in our lives and to tell them not just verbally, but notice they were to celebrate these feasts and to observe via their actions of what they believed in a way whereby it was observable with the eyes of their children. We're going to read in the next verses that when your son sees you doing this, God says he's going to say to you, what is this? Why do you do this? Why do you observe these things? Why do you live this way? And God's going to say it's going to create an opportunity again for you to convey spiritual truth and to talk about my works and what I've done in your life. And you know what? I think this is imperative for us as parents, that we realize that we have a divine commission to share spiritual truth with our children and to, to, to you know, take what we have and transmit it to the next generation. That's our responsibility and not just alone what we say verbally. But but the way that we lived, I tell you this truth. I experience it as a parent. You experience it as parents, and you we will observe it. Our children will not necessarily become what we say. They will become what we are. And it's not just us saying the right things, because you can tell them all the right things. You could teach them Bible verses. You can tell them Bible stories. You can say, well, this is right and this is wrong. And we, can, but our children ultimately are a lot more responsive to what they see in the eye gate of what they observe than what they hear in the ear gate of what we say. And and, and again, not that we shouldn't convey things verbally, but our children are not foolish, they're observant, they pay attention. And if we're saying certain things and we're talking about God and we're quoting the right verses and saying all types of things, but yet in areas of our life we are living complete contradiction and we're living in hypocrisy, and we're doing things that clearly contradict the very faith that we say that we affirm, and the very book that we say that we believe in and live by, we're creating tremendous confusion, and our kids won't become what we say. They'll become what we are. Because they will observe that, and that will have the greatest impact on them. So again, that plays out both in the negative and in the positive. So uh, live out your Christian faith, live out your walk with the Lord, that, I tell you at the end of the day, is what's going to have the greatest impact on our children. As they observe this, they were to use it as an opportunity to show their kids their faith. Verse 11, it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of Canaan, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is every firstborn that comes from an animal, which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it then you shall break its neck so again if they weren't going to go about the redemption process to redeem it with the sacrifice of a lamb's blood then god says then it needed to be put to death the donkey or any unclean animal the idea is there representative of the donkey and all the firstborn of man, your sons, you shall redeem. Alone, Notice, that it wasn't the same requirement for human beings, but their firstborn sons and children, it was still necessary to redeem them. It wasn't the same uh, stipulation or requirement as an unclean animal, but they were to redeem all their firstborn sons. And keep in mind, there was a purpose behind this. God wanted them to redeem their children, to to use a lamb to go about the redemption process, one, to recognize that that life was authored and given to them as a stewardship from the Lord, number one. And number two, I think as well, to remind them, and as parents we need to be reminded of this, that when they brought a child into the world, they introduced another sinner to this planet, You know, no matter how cute and adorable and wonderful they are when they're first born, the bottom line is when you bring a child into this world, you've just introduced into this world another rebel, sinner, you know, person who needs the redemption of God just like you and I do. And to redeem that child from an early age was a very clear reminder to them. It was a conscious awareness of, you know what, I just gave birth beautiful and wonderful as they are, I just gave birth to a sinner. And this kid needs to be saved and redeemed by the grace of God and the blood of the Lamb in the same way that I do. Uh, And the earlier you recognize that as a parent and you work towards that end to get Jesus on the inside… Uh, man, parenting gets a whole lot more wonderful. Because at least then you have the cooperation of the Spirit of God on the inside uh, working together with you in their moments of rebellion and challenge as you're trying to raise them in the ways of the Lord. Verse 14, so it shall be when your son asks you, notice again God says, not only are you to tell him, but he also will be inquisitive. He'll ask you, what is this? In other words, why do we do this? Point being, Dad, why do we live like this? How come you observe these things? How come you follow these spiritual disciplines? Why do you live this way? Children will ask if they see you living out your faith, not talking about your faith. When they observe you observing as they would be the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread, your child's going to say to you, God says, What is this? And then you shall say to him, Well, by the strength of the hand of the Lord who brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of the beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And it shall be as a sign... "...on your hand and the frontlets between your eyes, for by the strength of the hand of the Lord who brought us out of Egypt." So, take notice here. Again, God says this will create an opportunity for you to share your redemption story. And you know what, man? We should never, ever, ever grow tired of having the opportunity to share our redemption story, beginning with our own children. By living and walking with the Lord and observing the things we do spiritually and serving the Lord in the way that we do, whereby our kids can see there's something genuine in our lives that make, make them ask us spiritual questions. You know, I find tremendous, tremendous gratification to have one of my daughters come up to me when she's reading her Bible and say, Dad, I, I, can you help me understand what this means? To me, that is like the pinnacle of parenting. Are you kidding me? I'm having one of my kids come to me saying, look, you know God, and you understand what what the Bible means because you've been reading it and you walk with God. I want to walk with God too. What does this mean? And not for a homework assignment because my kids don't go to a Christian school anymore. They're not reading their Bible because they have to. They're reading their Bible because they want to. That's wonderful. There's no more privileged thing in your life than when you have your children having a divine curiosity and seeing and observing disciplines in your life spiritually and your own walk and commitment to the Lord and then coming to you as a parent and and being inquisitive saying, hey, I want to understand and having the opportunity for that kind of exchange to be able like like God's telling Moses here to tell the people, look, you'll have an opportunity to tell the people – when, when this happens, you'll have an opportunity to say, look, verse 15, therefore I sacrifice to the Lord. This is why I do this, because this is what God's done in my life. This is who God is to me, and therefore this is the reason I live the way I do in response. Just a beautiful, beautiful a picture of what would happen among them, what God, I think, intends to happen among us. And we're going to leave off here for this evening, because verse 17 kind of, the last couple of verses pick up on something I don't want to rush through, but take notice verse 16 before we close out. God says, it shall be as a sign on your hand, as the frontlets between your eyes, for by the strength of the hand of the Lord who brought us out of Egypt. Now, what God's referring to here, again, we saw this in, in the earlier verses uh, Back in verse 9, God said, It shall be a sign to you on your hand as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. Connected with verse 16 here, he's talking about the word of God being a sign on their hand and the frontlets between their eyes. Now, many Orthodox Jews... uh, took this very literally, and this is where phylacteries came from. You ever heard that term before, or you've seen pictures before of Orthodox Jews who literally take little boxes, which they attach to their foreheads right between their eyes, or they'll wear them on their wrist area, and they actually have in these little tiny boxes actual scripture portions from the law and so forth enclosed in them, because they literally take very directly what God says here that they were to have the law, the word of the Lord right between their eyes and and on their arms I think it's a wonderful noble thing I think the heart behind it I don't necessarily if God was directly concerned with the literal putting the word of God right on your forehead or on your arm hey, if that's a reminder and it stimulates you to remember the word of God I have no problem with that, I think it's a wonderful thing if it's just a liturgical observance and you say, hey, well, I got God's word on my forehead and I got God's word on my arm, but then you live like a heathen, it does absolutely nothing. God wants his word to be in your heart before it's anywhere else where it's affecting your heart. I've hidden your word in my heart, the psalmist says, that I might not sin against you. But I think the, I think the spirit and the heart behind what God was saying here is, look, I want my word to be in very close proximity to your life. I want my word right in front of your face all the time. I always want my word on your mind. I always want your eyes on my word. And I want my word close to your hands. Where are the hands? Your hands is what's well, what you do. And God says I want my my word to be governing and involved in everything that you do. That whether you will do something or you won't do something is governed by my word because you have a very close attachment and a close connection To my word. That, I think, is what the heart of the Lord was in this that there would be this priority on the word of God and a close connection to the word of God so that it had great effect in their lives. And God's word, as the psalmist says in Psalm 1, would become their meditation day and night. Again, he says back in the prior verse, back in verse 6, that the word of God would be in their mouth. The idea is it's so close, it's in their heart, it's connected to them, that it's just ingrained and it's a part of their being. And that's what God wants us to have a close, close connection to his word. So listen, whether that maybe means taking a Bible verse and sticking it on your mirror so it's right in front of your eyes and you see it all the time, hey, praise the Lord. You can implement it as practically as you want. Ultimately, God wants you to just have a very close connection to the word of God, that it would be in your mind, in front of your eyes all the time, that it would be involved governing the things that you do and don't do.